Hello and welcome to another episode of Virtual Legality. I'm your host, Richard Hogue, managing member of the Hogue Law Business Law Firm of Northville, Michigan. And today we're going to talk about a case that was decided middle to late last week that I think took a few people off guard, at least based on the comments to some of the videos that I've received and some other comments I received in my social media. Because I think... One of the things that people struggle with when we talk about intellectual property is the difference between trademark and copyright. And that's not people's fault. That's a function of what lawyers have done over a long period of time to conflate and confuse these issues themselves. As a matter of fact, you can listen to various Supreme Court decisions and see that the justices of the Supreme Court aren't always great about differentiating the different types of intellectual property. But it does mean that while we've talked about copyright here, for the most part, in virtual legality, there is another field of law entirely that focuses on trademark. And that is what was brought up in this case. I've brought up the Kotaku article here. It's not a very long article. We're not going to focus on this very much. But this was what was linked to me early on in order to discuss this specific issue. And it says, Activision wins First Amendment Call of Duty lawsuit. It's not a bad headline. That is what they did. That is why they won. But in order to dive deeper into exactly how the First Amendment impacts trademark as well as copyright, that's why we have virtual legality, right? So it's going to take a little bit more than that headline. It's going to take a little bit more than the summary here. I did want to flag for you that this was once again given to us, suggested for us on virtual legality by Joseph LaRussa on Twitter. Hi, Hoag. Since time of day, day of week has lost all meaning during quarantine Here's a late night virtual legality suggestion on this article with respect to the First Amendment win. Now, as it turns out, I also wound up giving quotes to Sam Desitoff and Game Daily Biz on this specific issue. Call of Duty allowed to include Humvees as court rules in favor of Activision in trademark case. And we will come back to that because in order to have the discussion in that article and kind of the summary statements that I gave to Sam in respect of this specific issue, I think it's important to understand what's happening here. So like with all good videos in virtual legality, we're going to go to the source. We've actually got the decision here. This is a summary dismissal of a case. And if you're not familiar with how American jurisprudence works, it basically means that both sides are allowed to submit all of their materials and make their claims. And then either side really, but most predominantly the defendants get to say, okay, judge, Assume everything the plaintiff said is right. We're not even going to argue about the facts because we might have some explanations for certain things about why they got the facts wrong. But just for right now, assume that everything the plaintiff said is correct. Do they have a case? Is there any illegality here? Because if there isn't, we shouldn't be wasting the resources of the justice system. And so the summary dismissal kind of stage of a court case says, okay, We will assume that the opposite side of whoever is asking us to dismiss this case is entirely correct. And if we assume that, is there an issue of law? Is there any illegality? And so this specific decision right now is a summary dismissal. It says, okay, assuming everything that AM General, AMG, who for these purposes, we're going to call Humvee, just so that we keep track of it in our heads, they make the Humvee and that's what's at issue in this case. If we assume everything that Humvee says is correct... Does Call of Duty, Activision Publishing, but we'll call it Call of Duty, again, just to keep things simple for everybody in their heads and for frame of reference, is Call of Duty violating the law? And this court case ultimately decides that no, even if we assume everything that Humvee says is correct, Call of Duty still isn't violating the law. 
Now, this case was specifically about trademark. It says Humvee brings this action against Call of Duty for trademark infringement, trade dress infringement, unfair competition, false designation of origin, false advertising, and dilution under the Lanham Act. Now, whenever you see the phrase Lanham Act, if you're just thumbing through court cases because it's quarantine and what else are you going to do? Lanham Act means trademark. That's the act in the 40s that put forth how trademark was to operate in the United States. And this big long list of things, you say, Rick, you just said it was a trademark infringement. There's more stuff there. That's how court cases go, as you try to take what is your fundamental claim that they infringed our trademark and then attach every specific statute that you can that might otherwise relate to that. So unfair competition, say, for example, exists because if you infringed a trademark and you benefited from it, then you were illegally and unfairly competing with Electronic Arts, who didn't infringe our trademark. And so we can bring this secondary claim against you. And that's that's how court cases are. But this case is all about, did Call of Duty infringe Humvee's trademark, essentially by including Humvees and Humvee-shaped vehicles in their Call of Duty franchise? And like I said, this is a summary dismissal action. They give you some background here. It says, in 1983, the U.S. Department of Defense first awarded AMG a contract to build the high-mobility, multi-purpose wheeled vehicle. Since then, the vehicle, known colloquially as the Humvee, has been the backbone of U.S. defense tactical vehicle fleets around the world. The Humvee, it's famous, it's well-known. Call of Duty is one of the most popular and well-known video game franchises in the world. That is accurate. What's funny is if you read enough of these cases in any kind of media, you'll see whatever the parties actually make described as very popular and huge and giant and all these other things. Call of Duty is one of the few times where it's like, yeah, that's that's accurate. Call of Duty is above and beyond most video game sales. And then it says the alleged infringing conduct, Humvees and Call of Duty. Humvees are depicted in nine Call of Duty games for varying durations. In particular, whereas sometimes they appear briefly in the background or are mentioned in passing through dialogue, they actually say the word Humvee, at other times players ride in a Humvee for several minutes during a scene or level. Further, at times the players can even assume control of the Humvee, including by firing a turret-mounted machine gun. In certain instances, the players cannot progress to the next level without interacting with the Humvee. So, you're going to see a Humvee if you play Call of Duty. You might even drive in a Humvee. You might even operate a weapon on the top of a Humvee. So that's a good indication that Humvees are a part of Call of Duty. That's what you need to begin with. Humvees are also shown in several trailers. Defendants also licensed a toy company to manufacture Call of Duty branded construction sets, two of which include toy vehicles. And according to AMG, those toy vehicles bear the distinctive elements of Humvees trade dress, the way it looks, not the Humvee name, presumably, or they would have brought it up here. But the way this vehicle looks is reminiscent at minimum of an actual Humvee. Plaintiff, Humvee, asserts that defendants did not receive authorization from Humvee for such uses. And then the instruction manual says what we are now used to seeing in software licenses, all this intellectual property is ours, uh, that we made it. Now, as the judge will say in this particular case, that's best read to indicate that they say the video game is theirs and not the component pieces, even though this is broadly written, and it's not likely to be able to be used by anyone to establish that they're trying to make claims that they own the Humvee intellectual property, which is, of course, at issue here. The final thing that's kind of interesting here is that in 1998, 
The Beanstalk Group, a third party that served at the time as the licensing agent for Humvee, sent a letter to Activision regarding the video game Sin, which has nothing to do with Call of Duty. And according to Humvee in that letter, it complained to Activision about use of the Humvee trade dress in a video game called Sin. Now we'll see later, they're trying to establish that we talked to you about this. And what we will also see later is someone sending you a cease and desist letter and otherwise saying, hey, that's infringement, doesn't make it infringement. And especially if you don't react to it, as Activision didn't react to it, didn't change anything, didn't do anything, didn't respond. You can't just take their silence in the face of that letter as tacit acceptance of, of what happened, what letter you sent. You can claim whatever you want under the law. That doesn't make it so. And so this letter is interesting because it is trying to be used to establish that Activision knew what they were doing was wrong. But the mere assertion in the letter doesn't actually establish that. So we talked about what legal standards apply to summary judgment. And then we will get to the cases. But before we do, I want to take a step back and talk about the nature of this intellectual property. As I said to start this video, a lot of people get confused about trademark and copyright. And we're going to talk about that because the distinction is very important here. I've brought up now the USPTO, Patent and Trademark Office, uh, explanation of these various types of things. And it's very, very useful. It's very important to understand what trademark does. A trademark is a word, phrase, symbol, and or design that identifies and distinguishes the source of the goods of one party from those of others. It's a name. It's a logo. It is potentially the way your restaurant looks that establishes that this specific thing is made by you. And to the extent that what you are using that name or logo or the way the restaurant looks to not try to claim that whatever it is that you are making is made by that person to whom the trademark is owned, you aren't violating trademark law, right? Simplifying that a little bit, the law is really concerned with whether whatever you're doing with that name or logo confuses people, makes it unclear whether or not the person that actually owns that trademark is making this product that you're making, is affiliated with you in some way, or otherwise you are using it in some nefarious way to imply those things and are confusing the people that would otherwise only purchase the products or services from the person that actually owns the trademark. As we see here, unlike patents and copyrights, trademarks do not expire after a set term of years. They are forever as long as you are using them. If you stop using them, if you don't police them properly, these kinds of things, they can be lost. And that's one of the other issues that people have when they're talking to me about copyright is that that's not the same. This concept of use and policing doesn't attach to copyright. As we see here at the bottom, a copyright protects original works of authorship, including literary, dramatic, musical, and artistic works. The duration of copyright protection depends on several factors, but it's generally life plus 70, or if you're a corporation, 95 years. And it protects things automatically, and it protects things whether you use them or not, and whether you police infringement or not. So people have asked me with respect to things like streaming videos, hey, can Electronic Arts just target one guy and say, these are all copyright strikes and not target these other people? Does that hurt their copyright? It could potentially, in a kind of equitable scenario where the judge says, hey, you're, you're a bad actor, Electronic Arts. But in terms of the underlying law, no, it doesn't affect their rights to police the unlawful infringement of their copyright if they only decide to do it against person A and not person B. 
So that's distinct from trademark, where if you stop policing something, you can actually ask, if you're the other party, for the trademark to be canceled. Said another way, in the actual law, we're looking at the Lanham Act right now. This is how trademark is described. Any person who uses in commerce any word, term, name, symbol, or device, or any combination thereof, or any false designation of origin, which is likely to cause confusion or mistake or to deceive as to affiliation, connection, or association of such person with another person, or as to the origin, sponsorship, or approval of his or her goods, services, or commercial activities by another person, shall be liable in a civil action by any person who believes that he or she is likely to be damaged by such act. A lot of legalese there, right? But it says just what we talked about. If you use a word or symbol or trade dress or things along these lines in a way which is likely to cause confusion or to deceive as to affiliation, which was mostly where Humvee is going to rest their argument here. They say, hey, we license our stuff and some people are going to think that we license this stuff to Activision and that has the effect of diluting our brand or otherwise causing us issues in the marketplace because now people realize they don't have to license our stuff and so we don't have a market to license that stuff. And so that's what they came to the court with. That's what they say is the infringement in this specific case. But there's more going on than just that, right? This is trademark law, but there are tensions with respect to the rest of the Constitution. And this happens in copyright as well. So if we actually go look at the powers that Congress has, right? This is in Article 1, Section 8. We've looked at this before in virtual legality. The United States Congress has a list of specific powers. And while, as you can see highlighted in yellow, the ability to regulate commerce has kind of exploded into backing up everything that the U.S. federal government wants to do, it wasn't necessarily written that way to begin with. And as a matter of fact, you can see in blue here, Congress shall have the power to promote the progress of science and useful arts by securing for limited times to authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. Written directly into the United States Constitution are the concepts of copyright and patent. Securing for authors and inventors the exclusive right to what they wrote, what they made, what they invented. Now, you might look at that and say, hey, isn't intellectual property, copyright, patent, and trademark? And indeed, the U.S. Congress actually thought that as well when they established trademark in 1870. And I brought up the Wikipedia entry here. United States law has protected trademarks under state common law since colonial times, which is below the federal government. But it was not until 1870 that Congress first attempted to establish a federal trademark regime. This 1870 statute was purported to be an exercise of Congress's copyright clause powers, the one we just read. However, the Supreme Court struck down the 1870 statute in the trademark cases because trademark isn't actually securing for limited time authors and inventors the exclusive right to their respective writings and discoveries. It's tangential, but it's not the same, right? And you say, well, the Lanham Act was passed. It says in 1881, Congress passed a new trademark act this time pursuant to its Commerce Clause powers. They always have the ability to regulate commerce among the states, which means if anybody is selling anything across state lines, Congress has the ability to regulate the use of names, the registration of trademarks, all this good stuff that pops up in the Lanham Act, right? But just like copyright, there's also this little amendment to the U.S. Constitution that creates this tension. Congress shall make no law abridging the freedom of speech. So 
I should be allowed to say something like Coca-Cola or say something even disparaging about Coca-Cola. I should be able to use the term Super Bowl if I were so inclined. And I use that term very specifically because if you're at all familiar with American football, you know that when it's Super Bowl time, the commercials on television or that you might otherwise see in storefronts or at the supermarket all refer to it only as the big game. Buy these chips for the big game. Buy this television for the big game. Not necessarily because they can't use the term Super Bowl, but because the National Football League, the NFL, has suggested that they will sue anyone that tries to, regardless of whether or not they win or not, right? And this is a trademark issue. This is what we've talked about with respect to copyright reform. But it doesn't mean that you shouldn't be allowed to use it. It just means that the NFL is ultra litigious. And for the most part, it's not going to make a difference in your sales. And so everybody understands now what big game means. In respect of copyright, it's made very specific, right? And copyright, remember, is a specifically authorized congressional power where it says the owner of a copyright has these exclusive rights, this bundle of rights that we've talked about to reproduce, to prepare derivative works, to distribute, to perform, to display. However, in the statute itself, they cover the First Amendment concept. And fair use is really that response to what the First Amendment requires, that you can't just limit the ability of people to comment on things. And criticism, comment, news reporting, teaching, scholarship, research are all the areas in which the First Amendment is thought to be the strongest, right? We don't want people to be able to make a video that is horrible and to not allow other folks to comment on that video, that that fair use should be allowed because the First Amendment, the ability to have a freedom of speech is so important under the U.S. Constitution, even though Congress has been given the express power to give exclusive rights to authors. And so they also wrote in the fair use concept. But with respect to trademark, they didn't write it so specifically. And again, trademark is at least slightly weaker in the constitutional kind of ecosystem than copyright and patent because Congress is at least one step removed from having the authority to have those trademarks out there, whereas they are directly authorized to have copyright and patents out there, which is all a long way of saying when people look at something like trademark, when they look at something like the Lanham Act and say, Rick, this is easy. Somebody used somebody else's name. What's the issue? You always have to remember that the First Amendment is out there creating this tension. And that while we don't have a fair use statutory provision to lean on with respect to trademark, we almost don't need one because what the courts have decided over years is that the First Amendment right to freedom of speech is strong when there is artistic expression involved. And if there is artistic expression involved, the law puts the thumb on the scales in favor of that expression unless there are really, really major problems that the Lanham Act should jump in to prevent. That's what we will see in this case. And that was a kind of long introduction to explaining why this case happens the way it does. Because a lot of people said, what is the deal? They're using trade dress. They're using the name of something that doesn't belong to them. Is that okay? And the court ultimately decides here that it is. And not even after an entire kind of decision-making process, but even before the case really starts, they summarily dismiss Humvee's claim. Now, that might be appealed, as you'll see I comment on in the article to Game Daily Biz. But for right now, this is the decision in between Humvee 
and Call of Duty. So we'll see some of this represented here. Where the defendant's product is artistic or expressive, courts have interpreted the Lanham Act narrowly in order to avoid suppressing protected speech under the First Amendment. See Rogers versus Grimaldi. I say, okay, absolutely. Let's go see Rogers versus Grimaldi. Now, in this case, which I brought up here on Justia, this specific case was about a film made in the 1980s called, I believe it's Ginger and Fred or Fred and Ginger, that was obviously used in terms of titling to invoke Fred Astaire and Ginger Rogers. And Ginger Rogers wound up suing on this to say, hey, I would never be involved in a movie like this. This implies my affiliation. I've got a problem under the Trademark Act. And then the Trademark Act says, okay, well, that's interesting. You've got these specific rights that you've otherwise trademarked to your own name. And we've got these earlier cases that say, A, if you're only using things like the Dallas Cowboy cheerleaders to try to sell your, uh, let's say, adult film uh, or in these other aspects where it's specifically commercial, specifically advertising, and you're trying to confuse people as to whether or not this specific celebrity has endorsed your product, that might be an issue with the Trademark Act and the First Amendment doesn't come in to save it. But that film and artistic expression is different. We look at this case and says, how to identify the line between commercial and artistic speech, however, constitutes the difficulty presented in the instant case. Instant case being lawyer for right now. In an era where artistic expression is often intertwined with the use of well-known symbols, which because of their familiarity may have commercial value, to read Dallas Cowboys, the case I just mentioned, as Rogers suggests, to require courts to decide whether an artistic message could have been conveyed in some other manner would have a chilling effect on the free expression of creative ideas. So understand what the court is grappling with right here. It is trying to say the plaintiff would have the court decide whether the artistic merits of the specific work are indeed useful, important, uh, necessary for public discourse. And that's always, always, always going to be dangerous. You don't want unelected officials in robes deciding whether or not an artistic work is meritorious. That's a bad direction to go. And the court recognizes that and says, so when we talk about whether or not artistic expression exists, it's going to be a very low bar. Also, the fact that you make money off of something is not going to limit the ability of the First Amendment to protect you. Here in yellow, more than three decades ago, the Supreme Court rejected the contention that simply because the production, distribution, and exhibition of motion pictures is a large-scale business conducted for private profit, expression by means of film should not be protected by the First Amendment. Just because you're making money on your art doesn't mean you don't get those protections. In the commercial speech cases discussed above, the defendant's use of the plaintiff's celebrated image or symbol was intended primarily to persuade the public to consume something that either had no connection to the plaintiff, Alan, or to convey the false impression that plaintiff was somehow involved with or had endorsed the product. Here, in this specific case, by contrast, the relevance of Ginger in both the film's title and screenplay is apparent at two levels. First, the title accurately refers to the fictionalized nicknames of the film's two central characters. It's legitimate. This is what you wrote into the screenplay. Second, the screenplay establishes the reference to Rogers and Astaire as the basis for the film character's livelihood and thereby recognizes the Rogers and Astaire phenomenon as a known element of modern culture. 
right? If you're watching a sitcom or a dramatic television show, the people there don't have to reference only fictional things. If you're watching an episode of Community, they're allowed to reference the show Cougar Town. If you're watching something else that exists only in this fictional environment, they're still allowed to reference the fact that they like Jack Bauer and they watch 24. Whatever it might be, you are allowed to reference things that are otherwise trademarked by someone else. You're allowed to reference Disney and Disney World, whatever it is that might float your boat if there is a reason for it. And the court is very unlikely to determine that your reason is specious. The court doesn't want to get into the art judging business. Against the overwhelming evidence squarely placing the film's title and screenplay within the realm of artistic expression, the fact that the film's distributors may have conceived of and even executed a few schemes to exploit commercially the public's familiarity with Rogers' name does not turn either the film or its title into commercial speech. So after all of this has been done and you've got some artistic reason for potentially otherwise infringing on someone's trademark, we're going to allow it for First Amendment purposes. And then even if you go and you advertise your movie in a way that, quote unquote, exploits commercially the public's familiarity with those names, that's not going to be an issue under this specific case. And and that's the first case that's referenced in this particular analysis as between Humvee and Call of Duty. Now, again, before we continue on, one thing I would note here that you'll note, that was a motion picture case. That's about films in the film industry. A lot of intellectual property law right now is going to focus on books and movies because video games are still, in the eyes of the law, very, 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 very young. And so we are always looking for analogies to what would apply to video games. And certainly the fact that motion pictures are so lucrative that people make so much money off of them is useful to establish that the overall decision-making process that was used to establish things related to films and motion pictures should be used to establish things related to video games. Not always. There's going to be differences. Software licenses are not the same as the ticket license you might have when you go into a movie theater. There's other things. There's other components of interactivity to deal with when you're talking about these things in the land of video games. And a lot of those things haven't been decided yet. But this kind of concept... I think that Rogers versus Grimaldi is a useful kind of tool because it establishes this, if there's artistic expression, you have to be really bad to get in trouble. And that's what the court uses to kind of establish this whole thing with respect to Humvees and Call of Duties. The court in Rogers articulated a two-pronged test that allows artistic or expressive works to make use of trademarks under most circumstances without facing liability under the Lanham Act. The court found that the balance will normally not support application of the Lanham Act, unless the use of the trademark has no artistic relevance to the underlying work whatsoever, or if it has some artistic relevance, unless it explicitly misleads as to the source or the content of the work. Although Rogers dealt only with the potentially confusing title, the Second Circuit has since held that the Rogers balancing approach is generally applicable to Lanham Act claims against works of artistic expression. Under the first prong of the Rogers test, courts must determine whether the use of the trademark has any artistic relevance to the underlying work whatsoever. Whenever the court uses language like that, it means this is a very low bar. Is it just naked commercialism or is there some possible reason you could have it in your motion picture? You could have it in your book. You could have it in your video game. This requirement, though real, is not unduly rigorous out of the understanding that the overextension of Lanham Act restrictions might intrude on First Amendment values. Then they talk about Rogers a little bit. If the contested use has that relevance, 
then the court must proceed to the second prong and determine whether the use explicitly misleads as to the source or the content of the work. It is not enough that a likelihood of confusion exists. Rather, the finding of likelihood of confusion must be particularly compelling to outweigh the First Amendment interest recognized in Rogers. Understand that, right? It's not enough that somebody somewhere could be confused, even if a number of someone's somewhere are confused. The evidence of that confusion must be so compelling as to outweigh the First Amendment interest in artistic expression. Such evaluation of misleadingness must be made in the first instance by application of the venerable Polaroid factors, which we will see, which is from a different case that isn't specifically useful for what we're talking about today, but did establish all of these many factors in which somebody could determine whether the use of a trademark explicitly misleads. Notably, the finding of, of likelihood of confusion must be particularly compelling, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, and then they've got a description of two other cases that aren't super useful for us. And then they start talking about this case in front of us. Starting at the first prong of Rogers, defendants' use of Humvees in Call of Duty games have artistic relevance. That's the finding of the court. There is artistic relevance in their use. Featuring actual vehicles used by military operations around the world in video games about simulated modern warfare surely evokes a sense of realism and lifelikeness to the player who assumes control of a military soldier and fights against a computer-controlled or human-controlled opponent across a variety of computer-generated battlefields. It's a great description of Call of Duty, right? The reasoning articulated by the court in that case is highly persuasive in this regard. Specifically, the court applied the Rogers framework to a motion for summary judgment in a dispute over contested uses in a Call of Duty game. Upon reviewing the copy of the Call of Duty game, the court explained that the uses of the plaintiff's name and logo easily met the artistic relevance requirement under Rogers because they gave players a sense of a particularized reality of being part of an actual elite special forces operation and serve as a means to increase specific realism of the, of the game. Now, a number of people came and talked to me or asked me to comment on this specific aspect. Is realism in and of itself artistic relevance? And what I usually say to people, and I haven't really responded to most of the folks that have asked me this at, at present, is it's easier to understand these concepts if you make whatever you are talking about more nakedly political. And it's very easy to consider these concepts if you make it nakedly political in whatever kind of side of the political spectrum you are on. So if you say, let's say we're not talking about Call of Duty, but we're talking about a different game. We're talking about maybe an indie game, a smaller game, and it wants to depict the horrors of the modern military industrial complex and the fact that these factories are cranking out all of this defensive arms and armament, and we want to comment on it some in some way. Is it more effective or less effective to comment on the modern military industrial complex if you can use actual modern arms or if you can't? And I would say it's pretty obvious that if you've got that factory, you know, labeling things as Humvees and sending out Humvees and things that are absolutely recognizable as what is actually out there when you watch CNN or Fox News or wherever you get your updates on various hotspots around the world, that if you've got those factories cranking out those things, you can make your political point better. And in the exact opposite manner, if you're just really in favor of things and the way things are made and various defense contractors or what have you, you could make the opposite political statement in your game. And with that specific directive, that desire to make that statement, then 
the court should allow it because we want people to be able to make political statements and the use of trademark isn't going to be infringed because nobody's going to be confused, especially if you're negative about them, that Humvee somehow endorsed your anti-military industrial complex game. Where things get more fuzzy is when people come and they say, well, Call of Duty isn't a political game. Call of Duty is a hoorah, Michael Bay explosion fest where you run through various similar war scenarios and you blow things up. And that might be true, except that we don't want the court determining what the artistic expression is. We don't want unelected officials deciding that this statement is okay, this statement is not, and this statement doesn't exist. So to whatever artistic expression Call of Duty is trying to achieve, realism is undoubtedly important to it. It makes that statement, that expression, stronger and better. It's not being used solely to establish that Humvees have somehow associated themselves with the Call of Duty brand, but instead to say this is what life on the ground looks like in certain respects for individuals that are involved in modern warfare. And the court decides that, says, yeah, realism is important. So they've already crossed the most important threshold. That means that under Rogers and under the overall kind of treatment of First Amendment issues and the Lanham Act in general, the court is going to look at this and say, absent some compelling interest on the other side of the trademark owner, we're going to allow this because artistic expression is so important. Then they say, we're going to use these Polaroid factors. And I think there are eight, and we're going to try to go through these pretty quickly. But the first is the strength of the plaintiff's mark. Is the Humvee mark strong? Is the trade dress strong? Say here, defendants, Call of Duty, do not challenge the strength of the Humvee mark. Accordingly, Humvee, this first factor weighs in Humvee's favor. So that's one. Degree of similarity. The second factor is the degree of similarity between the two marks. Now, what's important here is that Humvee and Activision aren't making the same kind of products. As the court says, put simply, plaintiff's purpose in using its mark is to sell vehicles to militaries, while defendant's purpose is to create realistically simulating modern warfare video games for purchase by consumers. Defendant Activision Blizzard earns revenue through the sale, distribution, and licensing of content related to video games. Thus, this second factor, because they are so different, and this is important, weighs in Call of Duty's favor. Similarly, you've got the proximity of the products. This factor focuses on whether the two products actually compete with each other. Here, the products are very far from proximate. Specifically, plaintiff's vehicles and defendant's video games do not serve the same purpose, nor fall within the same general class, and are certainly not used together. In an attempt to salvage this factor, Humvee essentially says we license out these various things, but that's not good enough. The third Polaroid factor therefore points in Call of Duty's favor. Bridging the gap. In this case, is Humvee likely to start making video games anytime soon? Has Call of Duty essentially taken up that entire space? As the law says here, bridging the gap refers to the likelihood that the senior user, Humvee, will enter the junior user's market in the future or that consumers will perceive that the, use, the senior user as likely to do so. Said another way, is Humvee going to make video games? Nope. As such, the fourth Polaroid factor tips in Call of Duty's favor. Evidence of actual confusion. Here, there is no evidence of actual confusion. As evidence of actual confusion, Humvee offers the survey, which it argues found that 16% of consumers shown actual video game play from Activision's games 
were confused as to our association with Call of Duty. And the court says that's not good enough. Less than 20% confusion regarding two companies' association is at most some confusion. Further, Rogers teaches that mark owners must accept some confusion when outweighed by free speech interests. Even the most favorable reading of the sole survey upon which Humvee relies does not hurdle this requirement. Accordingly, while the fifth Polaroid factor only slightly weighs in Humvee's favor, the countervailing First Amendment considerations counsel against according it undue importance in this context. This is already a big balancing test with all these multiple factors. And they say, yeah, you've got 16% on one survey. We're not going to give that too much power because you're always going to have some confusion and it's all part of a bigger balancing test. And we've already said that there are First Amendment artistic expression considerations here. Good faith. The sixth Polaroid factor is the defendant's good faith in adopting its own mark. While bad faith may be inferred from the junior user's actual or construction constructive knowledge of the senior user's mark, the gravamen of bad faith is the intent to sow confusion. In order to demonstrate bad faith, AMG Humvee relies on that letter that they wrote with respect to sin. However, where the 1998 letter would be admissible at trial, this court not need not consider it. And you've got a big old footnote here that says, well, they sent this letter, but Activision never responded. And so the only way you could use it against them is that they have admitted its truthfulness by silence, but that's going to be a big issue. So we don't have to take into account the letter necessarily. Again, this case is one that's kicked out on summary judgment. So the court says, accordingly, the sixth Polaroid factor tips in Call of Duty's favor. Quality of defendant's products. If there's a massive disparity between the quality of the products, and it looks like the worst quality, the junior user of the trademark name, is trying to essentially associate itself with better quality, that might be an issue. But here, neither side has presented evidence that one party's product is superior to the other party's product. As such, this factor favors defendants in, insofar as it, it doesn't exist. And then consumer sophistication. If you're a video game fan like me, you'll like what the court decided here, which is that video gamers don't have to be presumed to be dumber than the rest of the American populace. The eighth Polaroid factor is the sophistication of the buyers. One problem for plaintiff on this point is that the purchasers of Humvees, that is some 50 militaries from around the world, including the U.S. Armed Forces, are not buying Call of Duty games and vice versa. Thus, there is no risk whatsoever that someone will buy the wrong product by accident out of sheer confusion about who built or distributed the product. Indeed, the court in Louis Vuitton noted that moviegoers are sophisticated enough to know that the mere presence of a brand name in a film, especially one that is briefly and intermittently shown, does not indicate that the brand sponsored the movie. There is no reason to believe that video game players are any less astute. There it is, folks. Video gamers are at least as smart as the average American moviegoer. Not the strongest endorsement, I have to admit, but still, not bad. Then they balance the test. Then they look at all of this and they say, okay, so there is no issue here and we're not going to have a Lanham Act violation. Trade dress kind of rules exactly the same way. They go and they eliminate all the rest of this stuff because the trademark infringement action was the most important part of all this. That was the crux of this case. So looking at this in its entirety, it says artistic expression is very, very important. And if you are going to beat artistic expression, 
you've got to really show under all of these factors that you've got a significant problem. And that's ultimately what I told Game Daily Biz. I told you that we would come back to this specific article. And I've got a few quotes here that talk about that in context. I say, hey, my sense is that this decision is broadly correct, though it will undoubtedly be appealed. It's important to remember that the foundational meaning of trademark is to provide a trademark owner with the ability to inform consumers as to the source of goods. So in artistic works, much of what could be problematic confusion resulting from the invocation of a brand name, or as here, the the brand's trade dress, falls away. A useful comparison point is the presently pending case that Choose Your Own Adventure has against Netflix. In that case, Netflix has argued that it is invoking the name of the brand for artistic reasons, and in my opinion, they will likely ultimately win on those grounds. But whereas in this case, the judge has thrown out the Humvee manufacturer's claims, Choose Your Own Adventure survived summary dismissal and earned the wrath of Netflix. And as a matter of fact, I wound up talking about this specific case a lot uh, just a little while ago, March 4th, only a little over a month ago. It's been a long month, hasn't it, everybody? Netflix Choose Your Own Adventure is too generic to live. And in this specific episode of Virtual Legality, which I highly recommend checking out, I talked about the judgment and why it survived this kind of summary step that Humvee didn't. And so we pull up the Hollywood Reporter article on this and we see exactly what I just said. First, they say, yeah, there's artistic expression here, right? It says Netflix used Choose Co's mark to describe the interactive narrative structure shared by the book, the video game, and the film itself. Moreover, Netflix intended this narrative structure to comment on the mounting influence technology has in modern day life. In addition, the mental imagery associated with Choose Code's mark adds to Bandersnatch's 1980s aesthetic. Thus, Netflix's use of Choose Code's mark clears the purposely low threshold of Rogers' artistic relevance prong. It's exactly what we just talked about, right? When dividing it between A and B, it's clearly artistically relevant for Netflix in their episode of Black Mirror called Bandersnatch to say... Their character is reading a Choose Your Own Adventure book because it's evocative of the 1980s. It also kind of relates to what they're doing with this specific episode where you get to choose your own adventure in the Netflix app. But the next part is whether it's explicitly misleading. Here, Choose Co. has sufficiently alleged that consumers associate its mark with interactive books and that the mark covers other forms of interactive media, including films. Right? Humvee's trademark doesn't include, presumably, I didn't go and make sure of this, but presumably it doesn't include the ability of Humvee to make video games using that mark. Versus, when we looked at it in this video, Chooseco does actually say that their trademark is for making films as well. The protagonist in Bandersnatch explicitly stated that the fictitious book at the center of the film's plot was a choose-your-own-adventure book. In addition, the book... The video game and the film itself all employ the same type of interactivity as Choose Co's products. The similarity between Choose Co's products, Netflix's film, and the fictitious book Netflix described as a choose-your-own-adventure book increases the likelihood of consumer confusion. The physical characteristics and context of the use demonstrate that it is at least plausible that Netflix used the term to attract public attention by associating the film with Choose Co's book series. So we've got, in our case, Humvee versus Call of Duty, the court going through all of those factors and deciding that the case needs to be kicked out. It is without merit, and AMG has to go home. Here, in a very similar kind of situation, the court finds that First Amendment artistic expression use exists, but also says, well, because of what you made here, 
because films and books are similar, because the trademark actually allows the trademark holder to make films, a lot of those factors go in a different direction. Now, this specific decision didn't actually do what we just read, which is go through all the factors on a very specific basis. But part of that is because of the nature of not accepting a summary dismissal, right? If you're going to summarily dismiss a case, it's pretty important for the court to explain why. And if you're not going to dismiss it, it means the case is going to move on. It means nobody has won. You don't have to be as specific. You don't have to go through the entire legal opinion kind of concept in order to establish we press on. And so here they basically say, unlike that Humvee case, obviously this happened later, so this wasn't actually part of the thought process, but unlike that Humvee case, here this starts to look like maybe you're trying to suggest that this is a choose-your-own-adventure branded product. And if you are trying to suggest that, you could potentially lose the case. And so it's a useful kind of counterposition. It's something uh, useful as a comparison point to the Humvee case. As I say here, Hogue said that in that case, the judge held that the nature of the Bandersnatch episode of Black Mirror could potentially be seen as a kind of choose-your-own-adventure in its own right, which could lead to confusion in a similar way to the Humvee Call of Duty case. But you see, even there, the muddy middle of all this, the trademark, the intellectual property, you might look at that case and say, well, that's ridiculous, and Netflix is going to win. And indeed, Netflix is likely to win. I said, hey, in that case, Netflix has argued that it is invoking the name for the, of the brand for artistic reasons, and in my opinion, they will likely ultimately win on those grounds. I agree with you. But summarily dismissing the case might not be warranted because every case is different, as we talk about in virtual legality. The facts and circumstances matter. And if you are using something for artistic expression, you still can't do it in a way that is seen as wrong under all of those many factors or in a different circuit that might interpret it differently under specific rules that are applicable to that circuit. That all being said, it doesn't mean that you can't use trademark names. As I say here at the final uh, quote here for this article, a Pepsi commercial can call out Coke. A documentary in Times Square can capture all of the ads. It's ultimately whether or not the sourcing could be confused that carries the day. And where there are artistic reasons for inclusion, the law puts its thumb on the scale in favor of allowing the trademark use even more. And if you're not convinced and you say, hey, all of this still needs reform because bad guys can still use all of this process to make life difficult for you, you're not wrong. Right. The reason I made that article about Netflix, that video about Netflix, is that after Netflix lost that summarily dismissal claim, they essentially said that the choose your own adventure trademark should be canceled because they aren't using it properly or it has become generic. Yeah. If you go and you make the big gorilla in the room angry, there's a lot of tools in the tool belt that people can use. Let's not say to abuse the justice system, but to leverage its many weaknesses and faults against you. And so, yeah, you might escape some summarily dismissing the case. You probably won't escape the wrath of a thousand-person law firm. Now, I think Choose Your Own Adventures trademark will survive. I also think they will lose the case against Netflix. But at least we know one side will win in the entirety of the, in, in the argument, and that's the law firms. This has been Virtual Legality for today. I hope this was illuminating. We talk about these kinds of things in this space all the time. Last week, we talked about the fact that Last of Us got delayed and the very, very interesting notification that Naughty Dog gave about that fact, saying that the game was essentially done, but that logistics issues in terms of shipping, presumably physical goods, would be a problem. We talked about Kotaku's article and Gearbox refusing or not giving bonuses that people had anticipated with respect to the sales of Borderlands 3. 
We talked about Final Fantasy VII and its streaming restrictions before its release date of this Friday, April 10th. I'm definitely not counting down the days for that release. And we talk about much, much more. This video that we've got right now is copyright broken. A lawyer responds to Tom Scott is a response to an entire almost hour-long video from Tom Scott that talked about copyright reform and its need uh, in specifically the United States copyright system, but also in the United Kingdom. Highly recommend checking that out as well. Otherwise, if you could share this with anybody you think might be interested, share it in Reset Era, NeoGAF, Reddit, wherever else you might find yourself, I would very much appreciate that. Retweet the tweets when you see them. And otherwise, if you caught this on YouTube, thank you so much for watching. And if you listen to it in its podcast form, thank you so much for listening. And I will catch you on the very next episode of Virtual Legality. Virtual Legality is a YouTube video series with audio podcast versions presented as commentary and for education and entertainment purposes only. It does not constitute legal advice and does not create an attorney-client relationship. If you have legal questions about the topics discussed, please consult your own legal counsel. Thank you.